Our guest for this month's Let's Talk In Depth was an easy choice. With the Tokyo Olympics so fresh in our minds, it seems appropriate that we dive in with an Olympian. Jessica Smith represented Australia as a swimmer for seven years. And since she was a kid, her dream had always been to win a Paralympic gold medal. But her dream was shattered when failing mental health and an eating disorder forced her into early retirement. Since then, she's dedicated her life to raising awareness and educating society about the complexities of eating disorders and negative body image. So from Dubai, Jessica Smith, let's talk in depth. I was actually born missing my left arm and to this day, doctors have no explanation as to why that occurred. And so I think for me, growing up, I was really grappling with my identity and my place in the world. You know, I I was told by everyone around me, you know, by, by doctors and professionals that I was different, that I had a disability. And a lot of the, the labels that were being used to describe me have so many negative connotations. And for a young child, I remember feeling as though, you know, I didn't want to be limited by what other people were saying or by the way that my body looked. And so for me, I realised I had an opportunity to show people and, and to prove to myself that my my body could do amazing things. And so the natural progression for me was obviously to, to go into sport. And I grew up with three younger brothers, so we're climbing trees and skateboarding, doing all sorts of, you know, outdoor activities. And that in itself enabled me to, to realise that my body was capable of so much more. Um, ironically, though, when it came to sport, I felt so much pressure when it was team sport, as if because I had a disability, somehow I would always be the weakest link. And that pressure was just too much for me. Even though I enjoyed team sport, uh, I thought that individual sport was probably the only opportunity that I had. So swimming was something that I fell in love with. I really enjoyed being in the water. I had this sense of freedom and power. Um, even from a very young age. And I think, you know, there was obviously a bit of natural talent there, which helps, you know, build that level of of self-confidence. But it was my first swimming race when I was 10 at the school swimming carnival. And it was a 50 metres freestyle. And I won beating all the girls and boys with, with two arms. I grew up in country near South Wales in Grafton on the far north coast. So there was no other kids in the school. You That's know, awesome. I love that story. Yeah, so it's sort of in that moment I remember thinking, wow, people are looking at me finally for something that I can do rather than something that I can't do. And the elation and, you know, the excitement that I felt in that moment, only at 10 years old, you know, I remember it so vividly. And I said to my mum and dad, I need to swim. I just I want to swim because it makes me feel good. Um, little did any of us know at the time what that would mean in the coming years. Um, but unfortunately for my parents, it was a lot of early, early mornings um, getting me to and from the pool. Um, and it was just something where I felt, you know, I have the opportunity now to prove to society that living with a disability is not a hindrance. It's not something to be ashamed of. Along with Jessica's newfound physical prowess, she also found she had some psychological strengths, things like high achievement orientation, self-motivation, self-performance, and perhaps perfectionism. But any clinicians out there will also see a pattern forming as all of those traits are risk factors for eating disorders. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, some of those 
traits were ingrained in me and certainly come from my upbringing and my parents and and their approach to never feeling sorry for me and and making sure that I knew that the opportunities in my life were there I just had to take them and so having that sort of you know dialogue around me it was it was quite positive um but also I was just a teenage girl growing up in a world where we emphasize so much on beauty and aesthetics and appearance and so while I was navigating my world in the pool and and as a swimmer and achieving great things, I was then also coming to terms with the fact that I was going through puberty and I was this teenage girl who did look different. And so, you know, I wasn't getting the attention of, of boys at high school. You know, I remember one guy even saying, you know, you know, that girl Jess would be pretty if she had two arms. And so feeling like, you know, I just was too different, um, in my space. And so it was really, really hard to then try and combat that, the the negativity that then started to encroach, you know, in my internal dialogue, you know, I looked in the mirror and, and realized that my arm was never going to grow back. Um, And I also have um, profound scarring on my neck and chest from an accident when I was a toddler. And so all of those things, you know, made me look so, so different. And when I looked on the television and in magazines, I was never represented. Somebody like me with a disability, you know, we, we never saw that. And so I convinced myself that if I could change what I could control about my body, maybe then, you know, I could get that little bit closer to what perfection is and what society tells us, you know, those beauty standards are. So I thought if I could lose just a little bit of weight um, and fit within society's norms in some way, maybe then people would see past my obvious imperfections um, and maybe that would be enough to then feel as though I had been accepted or included. And for me, that was what I sort of, I guess, looked at as a way of being happy and a way of, you know, being um, um, normal in many ways. And that's what I was striving for so much at that time. So it was so, so difficult. And as anybody who has dealt with, with eating disorders or disordered eating, once you delve into that hideous diet cycle, it is so, so hard oh, to get out. Yeah. And me that started at age 13, 14 and just really turning to food um, f- for comfort in many ways, trying to to figure out, you know, who, who I was um, and I guess as well ha- living with a disability and growing up in a family where, you know, I, I was the only person, I am the only person with a disability, some of the questions that I had about who I was and why I looked this way, you know, my parents didn't have answers for and so there was a little bit of resentment as well. So a lot a lot going on in that childhood years and teenage years as well. And so for me, um, I did. I started to to diet and I started to look at ways in which I could lose weight. And unfortunately for me, that was the beginning of basically a decade living in the hellish nightmare of of anorexia and and bulimia. And and like many athletes can relate to, um, what people see on the outside is completely different from what's going on on the inside and the shame and guilt that accompanies an eating disorder and that insidious mental illness meant that I didn't feel that I could speak up and share what was actually going on with anyone around me. It sounds like an isolating and like really quite lonely experience. So incredibly lonely. Um, I felt the pressure as well that 
Perhaps because I was already living with a disability, I therefore didn't have the right to have any other issues to to complain about. And so I was grappling with that. It was kind of like a tennis match, you know, in going on in my own mind about, you know, how can I possibly ask for help, you know, when I've already asked for help so many times in my life, the fact, you know, from, from birth, having to... I suppose, adjust to to my reality and to feel as though that I was just a burden on, on my family and on society. And so it was a secret and a shame and a guilt that I lived with for, for far too long. But it was right at the time that my swimming career was taking off as well. And unfortunately, yeah. I feel that, you know, it, the two together just compounded so many issues for me during that time. And it, yes, it was incredibly lonely. Yeah. Can we fast forward now to what might have been the the peak of your um, illness, I guess, which was 2004. Can you take us through the 2004 Olympics? Making the team was obviously the highlight of my career. You know, I was so, so excited. Everything that I had worked for had become a reality. And I remember telling myself, you know, if I make the team, then I don't have to starve myself anymore I don't have to go into that binge purge cycle but of course as anyone in this you know same experience will know that the goalposts then just moved and it I said to myself well you know now that I am an elite athlete I have to make sure I look like an elite athlete I have to make sure that I am even more stringent even more demanding um, when it comes to what I was eating and how I was exercising and so um, as Athens got closer and closer, I became sicker and sicker. Um, and I remember landing in in Greece and feeling so excited but just terrified at the same time because it was as if I knew that my body physically and emotionally was under so much pressure. Um, I was expected to meddle in Athens, but I was the only member of the Australian team who didn't make a final. And that's been very, very hard for me to verbalise for for almost seven years when I, you know, worked as a motivational speaker. I didn't share that with anybody because the the guilt and the shame was still far too heavy for me to carry. But I realised that that's the important part of my story that I do need to share and that I do need to to express to help myself heal and to help myself in recovery. And so by explaining to people that my eating disorder had really taken such a hold on my entire life to the point where it had basically destroyed my swimming career, you know, to be the only member of the Australian yeah. swimming team to not make a final um, was, was absolutely, it was just horrendous. Um, and I remember. And so, was that, but so your eating disorder, was that, was that what you blame mostly for your underperformance? And I apologize that that word has got so much, um, so many negative connotations. No, but you're right. And I think, what needs to be explored here is it's not so much the the eating and the physical side, but the emotional burden as well. So I was in a complete state of, of depression by that point as well. And so, again, what a lot of people don't understand about eating disorders, it's not, it's not just about the food and the weight loss. It's everything else that, you know, creates this heaviness and fog and so yes it was it was a combination of of all of those things to the point where halfway through the week of competing in Athens I realized I was like I I am 
not going to be able to swim as fast as I need to. My body has had enough. You know, I remember my hair was falling out. My teeth were breaking. Um, that's just a physical side of it. But emotionally, I, I had basically checked out. You know, I wasn't even able to have proper conversations with people. You know, I was so fixated on the eating disorder side of things that I had forgotten why I enjoyed swimming. I had forgotten the love of it. And I was there because I thought I had to be, and I was there to prove a point. So retirement, giving up this one thing that you've worked so hard for throughout your life, this goal that, that was essentially your identity was something that was a choice that you just had to make. There was, did you, did you see any other alternative? No. And it was agonizingly painful to get to a point in my life where I realized that in order to continue living, I had to give up the one thing that meant so much to me. And that was swimming. Um, And it took a long time. You know, I tried to make comebacks and I tried to say to my coach who has, has, and always was one of the most, you know, supporting pillars in my recovery journey. You know, he just said, Jess, I, I can't take on that responsibility of coaching. You're too fragile. And and I respect that so much. Um, but I did try because exactly that was who, who I am, who I was. You know, how could I be just a girl with a disability now? Um, and that's what, you know, was playing in my mind. How could I just be someone with a disability walking through life? Because, again, that was the other side of things that I was dealing with Um you know, living in this world as a female with a disability is not easy. Uh, but I, I felt as though my swimming career gave me some sort of an advantage, another platform to say, well, hang on a second, maybe this outweighs, you know, those negative things. So to then turn around and realise that if I continued swimming, I probably would not be here today. I, I know that um, I would have ended things because emotionally, mentally, I just wasn't able to to take it anymore. So to make that decision and to be able to take that first step, knowing that I just had to trust that the next step would unfold without seeing it in front of me was so hard. And I think that's the important message for anybody on their recovery journey is you just have to trust. You have to be able to surrender and realize that, you know, we're not in control, that the eating disorder takes control of us. And to be able to, to walk away from that, um, is, is very, very difficult, but just to know that there is hope and to, to be where I am now today, if you had told me this, you know, 10 years ago that I would truly be living in a state of recovery, I would never have believed you. So for me to be able to share this with other people who, who might be on that same path, you know, to realise that, that recovery is possible and that I can be at a space now and a time, you know, with, with my husband and with my family where it is not all-consuming and I don't think about food, you know, and, and I'm able to to exercise because it's fun and because I enjoy it and I'm able to eat food because it brings me happiness, you know, in that environment with, with family and friends. Um, that is a sense of freedom that I wish everybody could experience, especially those people who, who are living with, with disordered eating or negative body image issues and obviously people with eating disorders. This story is just so powerful, Jess. I really appreciate you being so candid about everything. Can we take a step outside of your story now and look at sport as a whole? Can you tell me about the culture that you experienced when you were an athlete and whether you think that's something that's improving? Yeah, I think unfortunately, you know, the demand and the pressure on athletes to to look a certain way or you know to to be a certain weight or shape. Um, I think 
We need to really educate ourselves about that a lot more because I don't think that that's necessarily true. However, I appreciate that in some sports, you know, looking at speed, power, all of those things do come into play. And when we want to be the very best, we'll do anything we can to make sure that happens. And of course, I appreciate that more than anybody else. And I think the what's really interesting is that people who do live with eating disorders have many common personality traits and characteristics that are indicative of, of those people who are elite athletes. And that's why we see so many elite athletes who do identify as, as you know, having distorted eating behaviours. And so will that ever disappear? Personally, no, I don't believe it will. So what we need to do and what is being done at the moment is setting up support networks and collaborative approaches to ensure that athletes feel supported during that process. And, you know, the AIS and NEDC, the Butterfly Foundation, are doing some amazing work in this space. Um, and it's never it's never too little too late. I think, you know, it takes a long time to be able to, to learn about this because eating disorders um, are so personal and, and individual. And so to be able to, to get to a point where we can understand, you know, that journey for, for an athlete is very, very difficult because it's different for every single person. So to be able to have, you know, um, some approach that fits all isn't possible. And so I think the work that's being done now, you know, really does need to be to be applauded, but it is something that has to be ongoing. Everybody has to work together. Everybody must must be educated and aware so that we can make sure that our athletes' well-being is at the forefront of their entire journey. So the prevalence of these conditions among high-performing athletes hasn't gone unnoticed. The Australian Institute of Sport and the National Eating Disorder Collaboration have teamed up and they've put together a position statement with Jessica's help, which is aimed at trying to help athletes before they reach the stage that Jessica did. Yeah, so I came on board to share my story so as personal experience because I think for those people who don't have a personal experience, they don't understand the complexities of this for me and for others to share our story makes a huge difference. It gives that insight and shows, you know, how an eating disorder um, manifests and how it it builds and, and changes, you know, over the years. And and perhaps uh, through sharing our stories, we're able to ensure that the the team approach is something that uh, is is worked at. So from coaches to physios, you know, to, to team management, how can we all work together to understand this a little bit better? Um, and so for me, sharing my story was, was part of that. And I'm very grateful, you know, to be able to do that all these years later, you know, I feel like that I'm being heard, but I feel that by sh- me sharing my voice, giving power for other people to share theirs. And the more we do that, you know, the, the easier it is then to help navigate this world um, when it comes to eating disorders in sport and and I think that that is just one aspect of this collaborative team approach and so you know if if it means you know doing more of these podcasts and sharing more of of exactly what I went through then you know I'm I actually feel honored to be able to do that because it means that everything that I went through um, was worth it if it means that I can help another athlete not go down the same path that I did. Well, this is what we're aiming to do here with this podcast is to amplify voices like yours and the story of recovery and give people hope who are stuck where you were, I guess, before the 2004 Olympics. What advice would you give to somebody who thinks that they might be in a similar situation but haven't yet come to terms with it? I think the best thing we can do is to to find somebody in our 
you know, our network, whether that's our family or whether it's a coach or whether it's somebody in the the sport team space who we trust, who we can say, look, I feel like I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this. I'm, I'm focusing more on, on my aesthetics. I'm focusing more on, on what I'm eating and what I'm not eating. Um, I just want to you know, flag this before it becomes too much of an issue. I think if more people can have the confidence to do that, but that they feel safe to do that, that's that's the key there. And so I think um, the only way that happens is through the rest of the team um, educating themselves and knowing what resources are available so that if an athlete does come to you, you can say, okay, all right, we, we've got some resources that can help us here. Um, I may personally not be able to help you if it's a coach, for example, or if it's, you know, a member of team staff, but I know somebody who can. And and that is just going to be more about conversation, more about communicating openly and honestly to the point where it's not looked at as shameful for, for an athlete to say, hey, this is a real struggle because I can guarantee you that so many athletes identify with negative body image issues and distorted eating. So we need to take the shame and the guilt away and say this is a real issue that's going on and now let's make sure that people feel supported so they can take that first step to ask for help or to just say, hey, can we just monitor this? Can we just all, you know, work together because I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable, uh, I'm feeling the pressure, you know, and what it's going to take me to get to that gold medal or to, you know, to get to that you know, that specific time or whatever that goal might be, I feel that is becoming a little bit of a burden. How can you all help me to make sure that my well-being is always put at the forefront? And and that's not easy. I understand it's not easy. And I I think, like I said at the beginning, the only way that we make that easier for an individual is to is to ensure that we're all working together and to make it public like we're doing, you know, with the position statement so that people know, okay, if I was to come forward and if I was to share my struggles, there would be people there who are willing to listen. So to know that the, the collaborative approach is something that um, it, is well-versed and people are, are very much aware of it because then that's going to make it easier for people to say, you know, I'm going to take that first step to making sure that I'm putting myself, my mental health and my overall well-being first. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I understand oh, my this, pleasure. this was difficult. No, my pleasure. Um, yeah, it's always, it's, no, it's always great to be able to share my story. So thank you so much for your time. If you like this episode of the Butterfly Podcast, you might want to write a review, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And remember, as always, please share it with a friend. I'm Sam Iken. The Butterfly Podcast is an Iken Media production for Butterfly Foundation. Butterfly.